Chapter 11 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Abai in July 2022. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 11 Electricity in Nature. Franklin Handles the Lightning. A Russian professor accidentally electrocuted at St. Petersburg. Different kinds of lightning. A false notion. Thunder raindrops explained. How we may imitate the Swiss mountain air in our hospitals. The aurora borealis and magnetic storms. Wonderful electric fish. Earthquakes and volcanoes. From the earliest ages, man has been familiar with the lightnings and thunders of the heavens. But if anyone had dared to predict that these grand phenomena would be found to be due to the same source as that exhibited by rubbed amber, such a prophecy would have been deemed beyond all reason. Although primitive electrical machines were constructed about the middle of the 17th century, it was some 50 years later before experimenters suggested that lightning was simply an immense electric spark, and it was not till some forty years after these suggestions were made that Benjamin Franklin, one of America's greatest men, was able to prove this to be a fact by drawing electricity from a passing thundercloud by means of a conductor carried upwards by a kite to make communication with the cloud. Using a metal key at the lower extremity of the wetted string, which acted as the conductor from the upper atmosphere, Franklin was able to perform all the known electrical experiments by charging bodies from this key. Franklin had made known his intention of carrying out such experiments, and news of these particulars having reached France, the experiments were there successfully carried out prior to Franklin's demonstration in America. When Franklin had succeeded in drawing an electric charge from a thundercloud, it occurred to him that it would be possible to rob these clouds of their charges and thus prevent them discharging to earth through high towers, etc., which were so often seriously damaged when struck by lightning. In this way, we came to have lightning conductors attached to high buildings. It is amusing to read that at that time, the summer of 1756, a German scientist prevailed upon a clergyman to have a lightning conductor erected at his house, but it so happened that this summer was a very dry one, and the peasants, believing that this lightning conductor was the cause of their trouble, made so much noise about the matter that the reverend gentleman had to remove it. The danger incurred by any person receiving a violent shock from a conductor drawing electricity from the clouds was not appreciated, and a Russian professor at St. Petersburg, having erected an insulated iron rod leading into his house with the object of studying atmospheric electricity thus collected, received during a thunderstorm such a shock that he was killed instantaneously. This victim to scientific research, Professor Richman, had omitted to provide any connection whereby the electricity might have passed harmlessly to earth. We now know that lightning is merely a sudden discharge of electricity from one cloud to another, or from a cloud to the earth, in every way similar to the discharge between the inner and outer coatings of a Leyden jar, 
but on an immensely grand scale. The noise of this great discharge becomes a mighty roar as it echoes through the clouds. The quantity of electricity in a lightning flash is extremely small, but it is at a tremendous pressure. Here we have electricity leaping a great distance from a cloud to the earth, across the intervening airspace measuring sometimes a mile in distance, and yet we should require a battery of 1,000 cells or more to make the current jump over an interval of one-thousandth of an inch of airspace. Lightning without thunder is sometimes merely the reflection of a far-distant thunderstorm, or at other times it may be a quiet discharge from one cloud to another, where the difference of potential is not very great. If the thunder quickly follows the lightning, we know that the discharge is taking place very close at hand. I can remember, when a youngster, being so close to a lightning discharge that the flash and noise seemed simultaneous. I felt a sudden contraction of the muscles, and I could plainly smell the ozone or electrified oxygen. On this occasion a building within a stone's throw was struck by the lightning. It is possible to roughly calculate the distance one is from a thunderstorm by timing the interval between seeing the flash and hearing its thunder. The light is seen practically at the moment of discharge, for light waves in the ether would travel eight times round and round the earth in one second, but the sound, or air vibrations, will only travel at about 1,100 feet per second, so if the number of seconds between the lightning and thunder are noted, a simple calculation will give the distance the sound has had to travel. If 15 seconds elapse, then the distance will be a little over three miles. We can recognize three different kinds of lightning, fork lightning, sheet lightning, and ball lightning. In fork lightning we have a greater disruption than in sheet lightning. The latter appears as a slower discharge, although the whole time in which any electrical discharge takes place is a very small fraction of a second. Ball lightning is rare and has the appearance of balls of fire bursting in the air with a loud explosion. It is very amusing sometimes to read in the daily press the graphic account of a building struck by lightning. I recollect one report reading like this. The lightning entered the building by the chimney, rushed across the floor, and making its way to the lower part of the house by the gas pipes, it forced a passage through a crevice. And so on. And yet all this took place within one tiny fraction of a second. The disruptive effects of a lightning discharge into the earth have sometimes been so great as to give rise to the belief that a material thunderbolt had been shot into the earth. If we force a very fine jet of water up into the air so that it falls in such fine drops as to be little more than a mist, and if while this is happening we electrify a vulcanite rock by simply rubbing it with a cat's skin, and bring this small electrical charge near to the fine stream of water particles, they become electrified, and uniting together, they form quite large drops. This experiment is a very good representation of the heavy rain accompanying a thunderstorm. One often feels a decided heaviness or want of life in the atmosphere immediately before a thunderstorm, but as soon as the storm is over, the oxygen of the air seems to have gained renewed vigor. 
It is well known to all that great benefit is derived from the high mountain air of Switzerland by patients whose breathing apparatus is defective. On these mountain tops we find a large quantity of ozone or electrified oxygen, and in addition the air is free from a good deal of both the organic and inorganic matter to be found in the vicinity of cities, while the air being dry and cold, its dust particles are easily repelled from the heated surfaces of the lungs. Some twelve years ago I made the suggestion, through a medical friend, to the staff of one of our hospitals, that in a ward with patients suffering from diseased or weak lungs, an apparatus might be arranged to alter very considerably the conditions of the air, and bring these nearer to those existing on the Swiss and other mountain tops. I proposed that the air should first of all be cleaned by filtering through glass wool, etc., and that it should be dried and then cooled to a convenient temperature, while some additional oxygen might be added if desired, and then finally passed through a large vulcanite chamber in which some high-frequency machines would be kept discharging for the production of ozone, and the air in this altered condition might be led into the ward through vulcanite tubes and distributed at the patient's bedsides. The suggestion met with some approval, and I was offered facilities to carry out experiments, but not being connected either with the electrical industry or with medical practice, I merely offered the suggestion that those specially interested might make the experiment, the result of which seemed to me a foregone conclusion. Nothing was done, but I have been interested to note of late that the same idea has been carried out in other quarters. In contrast with the terrorizing lightning, we have the beautifully peaceful display of the aurora borealis. While this exquisite phenomenon is not of very frequent occurrence in our latitude, it may be seen nightly in the polar regions, but never at the equator. This beautifully luminous effect occurs in the heavens at both poles of the earth, but that at the south pole is termed aurora australis. Franklin explained these phenomena as due to discharges of electricity through rarefied air, such as we see on a small scale inside a vacuum tube. The magnetism of the earth is disturbed in the neighborhood of these displays, and we have what are termed magnetic storms. In a telephone having an earth return, instead of a complete metallic circuit, strange sounds may often be heard in the stillness of the night, due to earth currents possibly set up through the medium of the ether by some disturbances in the sun. The whole telegraphic circuits of this country are occasionally completely upset by these magnetic storms. Electrical phenomena have long been known to exist in the animal world. Indeed, one of the earliest electrical observations was that of certain fish being able to deal out startling shocks. This fact is recorded by the greatest of ancient philosophers, Aristotle, more than 300 years before the Christian era. We also have some interesting details noted by Pliny, who lived early in the first century of the Christian era, and who lost his life by suffocation from the fumes of the great eruption of Mount Vesuvius, on landing to witness the great phenomenon. Pliny records the fact that when the torpedo, an electric fish found in the Mediterranean, was touched with a spear, it paralyzes the muscles and arrests the feet, however swift. 
Then we have the ancient record, mentioned later in chapter 23, of a man having been cured of gout by the shock from one of these torpedo fish. Although these properties were known for such a very long time, it was not till late in the 17th century that modern naturalists gave the matter any serious attention. It was only then that this shock was recognized as being of electrical origin. Our present knowledge includes some 50 different kinds of fishes which show electrical properties, but the best known are the electric eel, gymnotus, and the electric ray, torpedo galvani. The gymnotus, which measures 5 or 6 feet in length, is said to be able to deal out a shock sufficient to kill a man. Many experiments have been successfully performed with the electricity derived from these fish, such as the lightning of an incandescent lamp, the magnetizing of needles, and the decomposition of water. This electrical property has doubtless been bestowed upon the fishes as a means of preying upon smaller fish for food, and probably also as an active means of self-defense against greater monsters. There still remains a great deal of uncertainty as to the nature of the production of these shocks. With the advent of delicate electrical tests, it was found that in our own bodies there are continual electrical changes taking place on a small scale. Earthquakes, although experienced from ancient times, have received little scientific attention until quite recently, and even now little is really known as to their origin. One great astronomer has asked us to imagine the solid crust of the Earth to be no thicker in comparison with its molten contents than an eggshell is to its yolk. We are then to suppose an earthquake to be due to the cooling down and consequent shrinkage of the molten center and the necessary taking in of the outer coating to adjust itself to the new condition, as an older brother's suit or clothes might be cut down to fit a younger brother. Other physicists argue that the earth is solid throughout, and that there is no fusion, although the internal temperature is enormous. The reason why it may be at a very high temperature and yet not fuse or melt is that the materials are under great pressure, and if a body is subjected to a great increase in pressure, it requires a very much higher temperature to fuse it. This view suggests that the molten effusions from volcanoes are merely local and do not necessarily prove that the Earth's center is molten. If a body that would melt on the Earth's surface at, say, 1000 degrees, be subjected in the bowels of the Earth to such a pressure that, although it is there at a temperature of 2000 degrees, it does not melt, and if the pressure be suddenly removed or relieved by some disturbance elsewhere, the heat it contains will instantly liquefy it. Whatever may be the true cause, for there will certainly not be only one cause operating, the great material disturbance is bound to give rise to an alteration in electrical conditions in the earth, but my present purpose in referring to the subject of earthquakes here is in connection with the recording of such disturbances by electrical apparatus as will be described in a later chapter. End of chapter 11